You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want to come to 2 Timothy because one of the things that this book focuses on is a godly heritage. And we are going to sort of start in chapter 4 and move backwards. And we're going to jump over to chapter 1. But this is the focus. This is about Mother's Day. Okay? But it's not just about Mother's Day. This is for everybody this morning. This is for moms. This is for grandmas. And this is for all of us who are discipling somebody, whether it's our own kids or whether it's someone else, this really is for everyone. So just keep that in mind, fill in the blanks as we walk through this for your own life and how it applies. There's some amazing truths in 2 Timothy, and so I wanted to spend some time here. But I begin with this poem, more of a prayer of thanks to God. Our thanks, O God, for mothers who show thy, by word and deed commitment to thy will and plan, and thy commandments heed. Praise God for godly mothers and godly households. And it's always interesting to me, you know, the, the impact that mothers have. It's often diminished in our society, especially today. It's a diminishing of the role of, of wife and mother in the household and the impact that they have. The Jewish proverb talks about the fact that if you have, can have 100 teachers, but a mother can do far more than that. But the realization of the fact that there is such great impact that can be had in a household in discipling someone. And when you get to chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, this is really what you have as Paul is going to go back again and look at Timothy's roots. As he says in verse 14, remember those from whom you have learned these things. He's talking about his mother and grandmother, not his father. We will find his father was a pagan. He was not a believer. So the only spiritual influence that Timothy had in his life until the Apostle Paul was his grandmother and his mother. And it was his grandmother first and then the mother. Both of them were believers. Both of them raised him in the Scriptures. And then comes the Apostle Paul. Now this is an interesting thought. I'm going to plan this seat in your head and then we're going to come back to this. But he was not saved. Ultimately, through the work of his mother and grandmother. In other words... He did not surrender his life to Christ until the Apostle Paul came through his region and proclaimed the gospel. And it is then that Timothy surrendered his life to God and accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord of his life. But his mother and grandmother set the foundation for that. Okay? And keep that in mind as we come back to this because it's an important thought. So I want to go, if you will, and look at chapter 1, verse 9 of chapter 2, if you will, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 9, this gives us the life context of the Apostle Paul. It's always important for us to understand the historical context in which these books are written in the Bible. They weren't written in a vacuum. There are things that were happening all around. And this we need to understand in regards to the Apostle Paul. He says this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, For which I suffer hardship to the point of imprisonment as a criminal, but God's message is not imprisoned. Now you need to understand, this is the first and only time that Paul refers to himself in this way, I am a criminal. So the time frame for his life. He was arrested in Jerusalem. If you look at Acts chapter 21 and on, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. He's taken into custody. 
He's going to spend two years in Caesarea in jail. He's finally going to appeal to Caesar and he's going to wind up in Rome as he's going to appear before Caesar in regards to whether or not he's going to live or die. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. That's his first Roman imprisonment. We then find that he is released from that imprisonment. He gets off on that trial. He goes and he is going to write 1 Timothy and Titus. He is going to go to Spain and he is going to return. As he returns back into the region, he is going to be arrested again. This time, he is going to refer to himself as a criminal. Why? In all those other letters, he refers to himself as a prisoner, but here he calls himself a criminal because now it's illegal to be a Christian. In the early days of Christianity, it was linked with Judaism because it had its roots in Judaism, so therefore, it was seen as a legal religion. By this time, it was illegal. Religio illicita. So Paul was arrested for being a Christian, and therefore he was going to suffer persecution. And we know that he ultimately died after the writing of this letter. He was taken out on the Ostian Road. His head was laid down on a butcher's block, and the axemen came with his axe and decapitated him. This is Paul's last will and testament. This is him writing from a dungeon cell. This is in, in Mamertine Prison is where he was. It was a dungeon, and most of the places that you were housed in there was a pit, really, is what it was. And there was a hole in the ceiling. There were no windows to see the outside world. There was a hole in the ceiling where they would lower food and water down to the prisoners. There was a cleft in the base of the cell in which there was a river that ran underneath the Mamertine Prison. And there you could hear the water, see the water, and therefore you had dampness in the cell, but you saw nothing of daylight or anything else. This is where Paul is sitting. This is where he's writing from. He is writing for our edification, and it is a letter of triumph. So it's important for us to understand this because the overall thought is he's going to challenge us to faithfulness to God and to his word in the midst of declension. In other words, he desires for our hearts to be stirred up and that we embrace the ministry that is suitable to the times that we are in. He calls for a greater devotedness to Christ in the midst of times and days that are becoming darker. If you notice with me, chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. There will be perilous times. The time, the word that he uses here referring to perilous times in the Greek is used to refer to demoniacs in Matthew's gospel. In other words, this is going to be grievous time. And this is a time as we draw closer to the coming of Christ, things are going to get darker, things are going to get worse. He says in chapter 3, he says, But evil men, verse 13, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And all those who seek to live a godly life are going to be persecuted. But this is a letter of triumph by Paul. We first see this in his own example in chapter 4. So if you notice with me quickly, we'll walk through this. Paul's pattern of faithfulness. What I like about the Apostle Paul is that he never calls us to do things he himself does not do. So if he calls us to prayer, he is a man of prayer. If he calls us to commitment to the Word of God, he is a man of the Word of God. If he calls us to be faithful, he was a man who was committed to faithfulness and devotion to God. So he tells us his present circumstances. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, For I am already being poured out as an offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. The sacrifice of Paul's lifeblood has begun. This is a euphemism for the fact that he is going to die. 
He uses this same phrase in Philippians, and it's only used twice in all of the New Testament. Philippians 2.17 and here. So in Philippians 2.17, it was a possibility. Here, it's a certainty. Paul knows he is going to die. He is going to be beheaded. He knows this. This is his last will and testament to his, if you will, his son in the faith. Paul's past faithfulness. As he reflects chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I find this amazing because not only does he reveal his legacy that he's going to leave behind and the faithfulness in which he served God and the commitment, the devotion, the way that he surrendered his life to serving Christ and the gospel message, but he's also going to reflect on the legacy that Timothy's own mother and grandmother left behind. We have a couple references, but they are profound statements that Paul makes. So really, in reality, as we read these statements about the Apostle Paul, we can also insert the thought of his mother and grandmother. Because he's going to talk about the genuineness of their faith. He knew them. He saw their life. He could speak to the legitimacy of the faith that they had in Christ and the faithfulness that they showed in their walk with him. But would it not be that this would be the words we declare at the end of our life? That I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But praise God for my mother. She's now home in glory. Her last Sunday on earth, she played the piano for us. I saw in her faithfulness up to the very end. We got to sit with her as kids with my dad. And we sat in the upper room at our house and we sang hymns. She couldn't talk at this point, but she could smile. You knew she heard us, and she would tap her foot the best she could, but she was heading home. I'm thankful for the father that I have, and I know not all of us have the kind of father that we would probably want to have or had, but we understand that we can be that father, right? You may not have had that legacy, but you can be the one who starts that legacy in your family. And that is the exhortation to us. Paul's future reward then in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me in that day. And it's interesting because as he states this crown of righteousness, this isn't a tinsel thing that's going to go on our head in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. This is what we call a genitive of apposition. It is a crown that consists of righteousness. In other words, it is righteousness that we are going to receive in the end. We were imputed with the righteousness of Christ when we were saved. Justification. We are imparted righteousness by the Holy Spirit as He works in our life as we struggle in this life against sin, sanctification. And then ultimately, we will experience the perfect righteousness of Christ, glorification. And this is what Paul looks forward to. And not only me, but all those who have set their affection on His appearing. The illustration of men's unfaithfulness in verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one appeared in my support. Instead, they all deserted me. May it not be held accountable to them. This is why Anesiphorus in chapter 1 was an important example of faithfulness. Because Paul was in prison for being a Christian. If you went to visit him, you were identifying yourself with him. And therefore, likely, you would also be incarcerated and you were putting your life at stake. Thus, when he was facing trial, everyone left him. He says, all of those in Asia Minor, chapter 1, departed and left him alone. He faced this by himself. Ah, but God was there because God is always faithful. 
Chapter 4, verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message would be fully proclaimed for all the Gentiles to hear, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the one who will rescue me. He is the one who will deliver me. He will take me out of these things. It is as a soldier on the battlefield and he sees his comrade in arms as he's wounded on the battlefield and he swoops in to take him and to bring him into safety. Paul says, this is what God did for me. And not only that, but he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is the finishing of the salvific work that God has begun in his life. He knows that he will finish it. This is assurance, brothers and sisters. Not because I ascribe to some kind of doctrinal system. It is simply the statement of what scripture says. But... What's amazing about this letter is that there must be faithfulness to the end. We must persevere in the faith. Notice, if you will, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says this, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Will we be faithful to the end? God will always be faithful. Will we endure to the end? Thus Paul's plea for us to be faithful. And this we find in chapters 1 through 4. And I have to start off with this faithfulness. It deals with the issue of devotion, dedication, and commitment. You don't just stumble into faithfulness. And when you look at the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, it's amazing their lives. I mean, these were ordinary men. They were blue-collar guys, right? These were guys that work with their hands. We find Paul making tents and acts. And it talks about his apron, and people were touching his apron, and they were being healed. It was his sweat rag they were touching. Because he made a living making tents. This is how he got by. Until the church released him financially, and then he would preach the word full time. Because he would be released to do so. But at the same time, what's amazing about these men is that they were also theologians. They knew God and they were committed to the work of God. Because of this, when Paul ends his life, these are words that he brings before us. Pistis, faith, loyalty. Will we be loyal to a loyal master? He is faithful to us always and forever. The question is, will we be loyal to him? He tells us that we have been entrusted with something. In chapter 1, he reminds Timothy we've been given a trust. But we've also entrusted something to him. Notice verse 12 of chapter 1. For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Not being ashamed. Not to be ashamed of the gospel. This is a reflection of our faithfulness. Are we afraid to speak up at workplace? Are we willing to share the gospel with our coworkers? Are we afraid that they're going to say something about us or mock us or somehow maybe we'll lose our job if we say anything about the fact that we are believers in Christ? Are you ashamed or are you unashamed? Are you willing to suffer hardship? And what's amazing about all of this is that as he challenges Timothy to suffer hardship, take up a share of suffering for the sake of the gospel, he talks about the power that is there for us. But he doesn't paint a pretty picture. He reveals that the times that are coming, as we draw closer to the coming of Christ, they're going to be more perilous and there's going to be pretenders. They're going to be those who are going to pretend to be Christians, but they're not really. They're hypocrites. 
And this is interesting because as he talks about this fact that they are hypocrites and they put on this facade, chapter 3, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. They have this facade of spirituality. They act like they're religious. They, they pretend like they're believers, but inside there is no life at all. So this is important for us to understand this because in chapter 1 he's going to talk about the unfeigned faith of his mother and grandmother and also his unfeigned faith. In other words, it is an unhypocritical faith. It is a pure and genuine faith. It's an interesting word that Paul uses for having this unfeigned faith, unhypocritical faith. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 1. So Paul is going to exhort him, hold on to the Word of God, entrust the Word of God, accurately handle the Word of God, abide in the Word of God, preach the Word of God. And you're going to do this in the midst of suffering, in the midst of abandonment, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of perversion of the truth. Now I'm just reading through these things, and this is just going through 2 Timothy, but can you imagine for his mother raising him in the scriptures with a pagan father. I would imagine that there was opposition that would come in the household. And we can see this often when you have an unbeliever and a believer married. The conflict, you're going in two different directions, right? One is living in light and the other one in darkness. And I've been, met many of those women who have raised up godly children in a household with an unbelieving husband, and oftentimes they made it extremely difficult because they would flaunt their sinfulness. They would mock everything that the mother would say, and any time she would take them to the Word of God, the father would seek to undo that. So imagine the context in which she is raising Timothy and the impact that she had in his life as she set the foundation not only for his salvation, but also for his ministry of faithfulness and unfeigned faith. He's going to talk about being faithfulness to perilous times and perverted pretenders. You can walk through this as he lays these things out for us. He's going to deal with the issue of love. And there is no doubt that this is a focus that he is going to take all the way through this section, although he lists all of these aspects of sinfulness that come in chapter 3, but they all flow from a wrong direction of one's love. He starts off with the fact that they are lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And as a result of this, the demise comes. And this is the problem with every heart. It's the problem of the heart. It's interesting because I was watching and, you know, dealing with biblical counseling in that, watching the news and I saw a report that they did these tests in England over a 10-year period. They studied these chemical imbalances, right? And it's the reason for all of these things that we see in our life and the things that we struggle with. And the interesting thing was the conclusion as they came to the end of this study after 10 years is there's no such thing. You mean the things that we're really wrestling with are just spiritual problems and problems of the heart? Yes. But Scripture's been telling that all along, has it not? So God commands us to love Him supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. But if we love ourselves supremely, we will not love God or our neighbors. In the universe, there's God, there's people, and there's things. We should worship God, love people, and use things. But if we start worshiping ourselves, we'll ignore God, start loving things, and use people. And this is a destructive life. 
And I can't help but see as he talks about all of this that in his mind he has Timothy's mother and grandmother and the example that they set for him. He is to be faithful in the midst of persecution and the midst of disinterest. No doubt his mother faced this in regards to the unbelieving husband. The patterns of faithfulness then. I bring you to chapter 1. And this is where we'll bring everything to a head. Because this is where Paul starts, but I think this is where we need to end because we need to dwell on the truths that are here. Paul's going to talk about a godly heritage. And we understand that grace isn't something that can be inherited. We don't pass on grace. In other words, just because you're raised in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. And this is the, the difficulty of raising kids in a Christian household. We instruct them in the things of the Word of God, right? But the fear sometimes is that they do what they do because they're trying to appease mom and dad. But what happens when they're out from under our roof? Then what will they do, right? So we spend a lot of time on our knees in prayer, right? That they will surrender their life to Jesus Christ. And then when they leave the house, you pray even more. So I thank my kids because I have a really good prayer life thanks to them, right? We understand that every individual must be born again. They must surrender their life to Christ. We pray for this moment in every one of our kids' lives. And when it happens, hallelujah, but then the work has begun. Because now we need to ground them in the things of Christ. Strengthen them in the faith. Bring them to the Word of God. This is what Paul tells Timothy to remember. Your heritage, your mother, your grandmother, they taught you the scriptures as you were brephos, is the word that he uses in chapter 3, verse 15, is he talks about the fact that he was this little, little one. In other words, the word brephos in Greek can be used of one who is still in the womb and then one who's come out of the womb and is still really young. So they started at a young age and started teaching him the scriptures. So likely, this is where he learned his ABCs. Likely, this is where he learned how to read. This is what they did. The Word of God was the instrument of education and the life of Timothy. And his mother and his grandmother did this. He learned at their knees. There's not one reference to his father at all. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? Fathers are to be the spiritual leaders in the household. They are the ones who are bringing the Word of God to the children of God, right? They are the ones who are to be raising up their children in the truth of God's Word and living a life of faithfulness and commitment and service and so their children can see this. But if it isn't there, <laughs> don't throw up your hands. Follow the example of Timothy's mother. It's interesting because Paul is going to reflect on his own heritage and his thankfulness in verse 3. Notice with me, I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. He had his own legacy. It's amazing that you would think this, right? And it's interesting in the first few verses of chapter 1, we have the word remembrance used over and over again. Why? Because he's at the end of his life. What left is there but memories? To sit back and reflect on the life that you lived. I want to see that in the end of my life, I left a legacy of faithfulness and commitment and devotion to God so that my kids could look at that and say, I don't care if you leave us a house or a plot of land or anything else. As long as you have left me a relationship with God that I can look to to find stability in my own life, then that is enough. That is enough. 
And for my kids, that's all I have for them. I don't own the house I live in. I don't own the car I drive. All I have to leave them is the life that I've lived in service of Christ. And I hope they find strength from that. I have to say, it's interesting, this stage of my life, having my dad live in my home, he's in his 80s and he's still going, right? He's pastoring a church just not too far from here. In his 80s. <laughs> I don't want to live that long, but if I do, I pray that I'm still doing the same thing he's doing. But it's interesting having him live in my home because he and I, we butted heads all the time. We're nothing alike at all. <laughs> you know what we have in common? Our relationship with God and His Word. It's interesting to, to watch our life and to look back in the memories I had. I know that all of his gray hair, I gave it to him. I'm pretty sure of that. I know I helped out his prayer life. But I was so thankful for he and my mother because no matter how hard I pushed, they never gave way. Never compromised. Never altered the truth. They were exegetical and everything, even their lifestyle. It was by the book. And they never backed off. They loved me, yes. My father kicked me out of the house, yes. And I thank him for doing that. We don't have that much anymore, that tough love. I remember one time I, I, my dad had kicked me out of the house and so I snuck back in the house to get some clothes. I knew that everyone was gone. I was supposed to be in high school, but I wasn't. And so I broke in the house to get some clothes and I decided, well, no one's here. I'm going to take a shower and get dressed, get some clean clothes and head out before anyone gets home. My mom pulls up and I'm walking out the front door. And I will never forget it. She says, your father has told you you are not to darken this doorstep until you repent of what you're doing. She says, don't ever come back to my house again until you're right with God. And I have to tell you, that is not my mom. That is not my mom. I expect that from my dad, but not my mom. I needed that, though, because I realized this is for real. But they never backed down, not once. So you might be fighting it alone. You may not have a believing husband. You may not even have a husband. But that doesn't mean that you cannot be that example for your children. Paul says, I'm so thankful for my ancestors. He was delighted by the heritage that he had. I can't help but think of Hebrews 12, 1, where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He refers to his life of service. And this is an interesting word, latruo, because it looks at life as an act of worship, everything he did. In other words, what he helps us to understand by this simple statement is that our entire life, what we do is an act of worship to God. Even the mundane chores then, right, aren't mundane anymore. Cleaning, right? Mowing yards, doing all that stuff. There's more to it than that. 
when you understand that everything in life is an act of worship, changes everything. I realize that that's how my mom did it, right? I mean, seriously, I, piles of clothes of laundry, right, never seem to stop. The older the kids get, the more laundry there is. And then all of a sudden, here comes my brother. And then, you know, all of a sudden, we hit our teens, and it's like, man, you're eating like crazy, and there's dirty dishes in the sink all the time, and all of this stuff, and she's got to keep going. What was it that drove her in all of this? Right? If she only saw it as mundane, just picking up after her kids, I'd imagine she would get weary after a while and say, I'm not doing this anymore. True worship goes beyond praising God, singing hymns, participating in worship. It's about how you live your life. When your kids see your life as mothers and fathers, do they see you worshiping God in all that you do? Is your job just a job? Or is it an opportunity? Paul talks about in chapter 2 to, that, to look for these men that are not entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Are they opportunities in everyday affairs of life? Are they opportunities for you to share the gospel with others? Or are they entanglements? Are you so bound up in all the things that you're doing in everyday life that you fail to see what you're supposed to be doing? Making disciples, serving the Lord, declaring the gospel to those who are around you? Our mission is not only to disciple our kids, but to disciple others. And we see this happening in Timothy's life. His mother and grandmother, this is what they did. They discipled him. And this is the terminology that Paul uses in chapter 3 as he talks about the fact that you have learned these things and who you learn from. This is the word that is at the root of the word for disciple. A disciple is a learner. In other words, Paul is saying your, your mother and your grandmother, they discipled you. And then all of a sudden Paul comes into his life, proclaims the gospel Timothy surrenders his life to Christ and Paul comes back again through his area and he sees this young man and hears all the things that people are saying about him and they say, I want to take this young man with me on my missionary journeys and I want him to serve the Lord alongside of me and this is exactly what he did and then Paul carried on the discipleship process in the life of Timothy. But it started with his mom and grandmother. So Paul reflects on this in verse 5 of chapter 1, for I am mindful of sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. He knew all three of them. He saw all of their lives. He understood their legacy. He understood what they left behind for him. He was from a racially and religiously mixed marriage. The descriptions that we get in Acts 16, verse 1 and verse 3 of Timothy's dad indicates the fact that he was a pagan. He adds no qualifying statements. In 16.1 he says this, He came to Derby and then to Lystra, and behold, there was a disciple whose name was Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but whose father was a Greek. In other words, he wasn't saved. He was pagan. We find no mention of his father alongside of his mother or grandmother when talking about the influences in his life. No mention of him in chapter 1, verse 5, when he talks about this unhypocritical faith, this unfeigned faith. In other words, the only basis that Paul can draw off in regards to Timothy's life is the impact of his mother and his grandmother in his life. And notice how he starts verse 5, your grandmother Proton first. This is a chronological order. First she surrendered her life to Christ, then her daughter surrenders her life to Christ, and they together pour themselves into Timothy's life. It's interesting this word as he talks about their faith. That this faith dwelt in them. It was a living faith. It was an unhypocritical faith. The word that Paul uses here for this unhypocritical faith in regards to theirs and Timothy's 
and I have to tell you this Greek word. It's interesting. So, hupokrinomai is a word that describes to answer on stage. In other words, to play a role. So, this is a term that would be used in the theater. Greek theaters, Roman theaters. They would talk about one who plays the role, hupokrinomai. So the actor then who plays that role is called a hypocrites, a hypocrite. Why are they called a hypocrite? Because they would wear these masks so that they can conceal their true identity as they would play these roles on stage. What Paul is saying to Timothy is that your grandmother's faith, your mother's faith, and your faith is an unmasked faith. It's unhypocritical. You're not playing the part. You really are that. You're a believer. It's genuine. How many of us do that, though? We know that there are those in the church, right? They come to Sunday and they do Wednesday night Bible study and whatever else. They put the mask on. They come play the role. And then when they go home, the mask is off and they're back to themselves again. Not one thought of God, not one sense of devotion, not one commitment to the gospel or serving the Lord in any way, but only when you come to church, you put the mask back on and you play the role. The early church understood nothing about this role playing. We do in America. It is a thing, is it not? Paul says, I don't see that in you at all. Because I didn't see it in your grandmother and I didn't see it in your mother. It's interesting, this word for indwelling, it's used of God and believers, of the Holy Spirit, of the word of Christ, and here of faith dwelling in us, which tells us something about the nature of faith and the source of it. Timothy's firm grounding in the scriptures and his personal loyalty to them provided a basis for his useful service to Christ. And this was all because of his mother and his grandmother. It's interesting as they pour into his life, chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul then comes along. He is going to share the gospel. Timothy is going to surrender his life to Christ. And in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is going to remind him about this journey they took together. He says, now you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecution, sufferings. You've seen what's happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord has rescued me. You've been there, Timothy. You've walked with me through life. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. I'm glad that the Lord brought this to my attention early on with my kids, you know, because I thought that having Bible time with them every night was enough. And I was teaching them Greek and Hebrew, so when they could start speaking, I taught them the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet, and then I started teaching them memorizing verses in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, all this stuff, right? And then all of a sudden the Lord said, what does that matter if they're not living out these truths in their life? So my wife would say, so what? It's all good, but I need to be in their life helping to understand how to apply the truth of God's word to their life. So that means I need to walk with them in life and be around them, right? Seize those teachable moments, those moments to impart truth to them and to invest something into their life from the Word of God because you never know when they're going to draw on those things later in life. That anchor that my parents gave me over the years, you know, and sometimes I'd go to mom and dad, would you stop reading the Bible to me and stop talking about the Bible? Just tell me, right? Just tell me. All these years later, I look back. 
I'm still thankful all they did was went to the Bible. <laughs> because I realized that's the only place for me to find my answers. And I needed to help my kids to see the truth that these things need to apply to your life. How do you flush this out? What does this look like? So as parents, are we modeling for our kids? Are we discipling them? Are we showing them how this looks as you take these principles and apply them to life? It's amazing now because I'm sitting with my older son as he comes to visit and the conversations we are having, I'm saying, thank you, God. Thank you. I mean, he's talking about the attributes of God and he's expounding on and on. I'm just there going, who is this kid? But it's all the heritage. All my boys, they, they tote a mark of our family clan. They all have the family crest on their arm. Our family helped establish Scotland. We're the first roots in Scotland. If you go there, you'll find McDougal all over the place. We're related to a whole bunch of other clans. So we have good history. Traced in my lineage all the way back to the Reformation, and one of my great ancestors wrote a doctrinal thesis during the Reformation. I can look down my father's side of the family, and there's pastors upon pastors upon pastors upon pastors. And it's interesting because as I look back on all of that, I say to my boys, I'm, I'm glad that you're proud, right, of our family, but the heritage that really matters is the spiritual one. You may not have that to look back on, but you can be that right here, right now for your kids. Yes? Remember a brother came and said to me, he said, Steve, I, I don't know, what do I do, right? Because my dad was never like this. I mean, he left him alone all the time. His mom didn't pour any, any time into his life whatsoever. He pretty much had free reign to do whatever he wanted. He learned how to read by getting manuals from his dad's workshop and just reading through them, and that's how he figured out how to read. He said, they never invested any time in me. And he says, I don't have that to look back on. I said, now, but you begin to be the start of what, right? A legacy. So Paul's going to remind him of this and remind you of this. And it's interesting because I came across this, and I remember a brother reached out to me sometime back, and he was writing his testimony. And he says, Steve, I, I was writing my testimony today, and one of the statistics that stand out from my childhood, he says, for 10 years, from 1977 to 1987, I would visit my natural or real mom 30 times in 10 years, three times a year at spring break, a month every summer and Christmas. Over a 10-year period, we drove 13,320 miles for 240 hours back and forth. By the time I was 18, my father had been married four times. We lived in eight different towns, 17 different homes, eight schools, and I had seven step-siblings. And he said, you know, the most amazing thing is I look back over the impact of my life. It was my grandmother who took me to church every single Sunday. His dad wasn't a believer. His moms were not believers. His grandma was. She took him to church and took him to Bible study. And it's through that he surrendered his life to Christ. Just remember, our families don't always look beautiful and they don't always look the way that God designed them to be. But we all have an impact in the lives of those around us, yes? 
by a life of faithfulness to the Word of God and faithfulness to God. Rob, would you close in a word of prayer, brother?